Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Micah Blank. And today, just a little bit of fun, is my co-host, Drew Whitson. What's going on, Drew? Hey, Michael. Thanks for being here. I'm excited about this episode today because, yet again, we have someone who has become financially free with, uh, with real estate. And it's no surprise that it was with uh, multifamily syndications. And what's really cool about that uh, is that uh, he is now giving back and he's now teaching other people how to do the same thing. And we'll get that into in a second. But one of the things that I was going to ask you, Drew, is, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, habits, disciplines are very successful. And when I, when I, you know, study successful people, they actually have things, routines and habits they do over and over again. Like, like what's a habit that you feel really contributes to your success? You know, I think it's they take action every day. I tell my students the kind of things that the, the things that I want to move forward with are opportunities to make progress in different areas every single day. You're better off trying to work on something for one hour a day than trying to wait for the weekend and get five hours in on a Saturday. Making consistent, regular progress on a daily basis will provide significant advancement towards your goals. Now, how do you do that? I mean, how do you make sure you're making little advancements every single day, every single week? Yeah, it's about controlling your time. And so, people who have ability to carve out time and be disciplined um, with their schedule have the opportunity to find these little, these, these corners of their day or they can dedicate some time and then they build other things around that, right? I don't want to just find a time when I have an open spot to make progress in my business. I want to find a spot to lock in my business time and then I build my life around that. So, starting with those priorities first and then building the rest of your life around that will make sure you keep those important things going first. There's a book by Gino Wickman called uh, Traction, and he talks about rocks, right? It's the idea of how do you fit rocks, you know, pebbles and, and sand into a bowl, right? Mm-hmm. If, you tr- if you try to throw in the sand first and then the, and then the pebbles, you won't have enough room for all the rocks because you want a room. But if you reverse it, you throw the rocks in first, then the pebbles, and then all of a sudden there's room in, in the crannies for the sand, and so what he argues is that focus on the rocks and everything else later. And so the way I do it is I actually schedule time to work on the rocks. So I have time. And for me, it's Tuesday mornings and Thursday mornings. So it's three hours and three hours, so six hours total in a week where the only thing I'm working on is rocks. I'm not dealing with pebbles or sand, no meetings, no phone calls, no nothing except for like the two or three things I want to get done in the week. And that's kind of what, what works for me. Any, anything else that works for you? Yeah, I, you know, I'm making sure that we, when you have your goal in mind, you know that you are nurturing both the relationships that you have that will help you make you successful, which means that those big rocks might not be the biggest amount of time, but they might be the most important things, meaning you're calling your brokers that you have the most important relationship with. You're calling and speaking with your investors to make sure you understand where, where they're at. You know, you're working on, you're with your property managers. You're spending time um, not only doing the things that help uh, you get to those goals, but help things that have been successful. Continue to nurture those relationships because those are the big rocks. Those are the kind of pieces in this business that will help you continue to be successful deal after deal. That's cool. But one of the things I like to do also, I like to, what I call batch things together, similar things together. And so, for example, podcasts or recording something, I like to put all those things together. But same thing, analyzing deals. You know, if you're analyzing mm-hmm. deals, you're in a certain spreadsheet mode. It's considerably different than calling investor mode, right? Yes. Totally different. So, yes. what I don't like is calling investor, analyzing a deal, calling investor. And like that is like you're constantly switching from one to another. So, I like batching things together that are like and again, adding those in the calendar, because if you don't add them in the calendar, at least in my world, ain't getting done, right? So it's not like, oh, let me see if I find a crevice between 1.30 <laughs> and 2 o'clock. And if I have the time, I get to that. No, doesn't work. Doesn't work for me. Absolutely. <laughs> 
So we're going to get right in the show here with Matt Bronner. And before we get into that, I, I do want to shout out to some of the uh, people who are looking to passively invest in Deal. And if you're one of those people or you're maybe on the fence, I have a free report for you at themichaelblank.com forward slash report. And in there, I compare the stock market versus real estate investing might find might be very useful for you. If you're ready to go, why not join our investor club? It's at nighthawkequity.com forward slash join or just click the join button. You'll fill out a, a short form and then you'll have a phone call with us and we can explore potentially investing in an upcoming opportunity. So make sure you do that while it's still fresh on your mind. So with that, let's get right into the show with Matt Bronner. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Matt, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me on, Michael. I'm excited to be here. So I'm curious, you decided to, uh, and we're going to get into your story because you know, people want to know how you got started, how you did your first deal, but you you have quit your job at one point. We're getting into that as well. But I, I'm curious because you you decided to help others become financially free by becoming the mentors in, in our organization. I was wondering, you know, there's so many people that are successful in syndications, uh, but very few of them actually teach their their secrets. Why did you decide to teach others? You know, my career is really a large function of my faith, which ties in to who I am. My wife and I thought we were going to live the rest of our lives in Austin, Texas. We were near family. We had a home on an acre of land and just thought that, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible blessing that we could ask for. But I just really felt this calling to work, worship, and play all in the same place. I needed to be planted. And along the way, I was blessed enough to have an investment company and at the time was townhomes grew into multifamily that was growing. And so that became the avenue that I could really be planted and pursue financial independence. And it's really tied into who I am as a husband, as a father, my ability to be home for dinner, my ability to be present with my children. And that's just a large part of my worldview that shapes who I am as a man. And I want to help others do that as well. That's it's really important to me that they can find that. Yes, there is financial success to be had here. Uh, yes, financial independence has multiple facets to pursue. But I think what we miss is the freedom, especially you know, I'm just speaking from my perspective as a husband, as a father, what that gives you. As a part of an investment group, you said one of your first forays in real estate was townhomes. Tell me a little bit about how this group decided to get together and why did you choose your initial townhome investment? You know, I'd love to tell you that we were just all so smart that we looked at all this data and said, yes, that's it. But it was 2011, virtually there were six of us, including me. None of us were parents at that point in time. A few of us were married. We were getting together to throw 50 bucks a month at the stock market and really just kind of hang out and have a few beers there where there was one of us that said, hey, if you're interested in really investing, come to Perkins the next day. And so six of us showed up. We each knew like one other person in that group. We didn't collectively know one another. And this was in 2011. So we were just starting to see a bounce back in single family home prices. But because of the way condos and townhomes are financed, they had been particularly hit hard. And so there was a good opportunity there. And we liked it because you could amortize your risk, right? If somebody was getting involved, okay, I, I know that maybe the roofs, the exteriors gonna be taken care of. We didn't quite understand what was entailed in the management. And so we started really looking around just where we lived. 
and got into townhomes there. And that enabled us because of the fact that you could rely on the HOA that enabled us to scale quickly. And then we transitioned later on into multifamily. What made you comfortable getting into real estate? Now, you guys were just thinking about throwing 50 bucks a month in a stock market. So it sounded like in your mind, that was a stretch in itself. And you just kind of skipped right over it and went into real estate. Like why, what made you comfortable in doing that? You know, even then, you know, we were pretty young in our financial careers, but yeah, it's fun to bet on the direction that Amazon's going to go. But Jeff Bezos isn't calling me for any type of insight, right? Like I don't get to influence any direction of the stock market. It was exciting because we could look at and say, all right, you know, we're in control here. You know, we can influence this direction. And there was just valuations that didn't make sense. You know, things Again, it went back to, and this is getting super specific into the townhomes, into how they're financed. You know, once so many go vacant or you've had any evictions, it becomes harder to move them. So only certain types of buyers can do and move into those investments. But it was like, no, these are definitely worth more. These prices on these are silly. So we didn't have all the answers. It was just a knowledge that, look, we're buying a real asset here that somebody else can utilize and that we can rent out. Matt, one of the questions we often get as mentors is how do I know who to partner with and how do I find those people and how do I know when it's a good fit? How do you know this group was a good fit uh, when you started the group and how do you know that they've continued to be a good fit today? Sure. I would say I feel more confident later on than I did at the outset. And it's a question I get from a lot of my students. Initially, I felt confident because I was a single guy. My attitude was honestly like, look, the money I'm putting in here if I lose this, I'm employable. There's no one depending on me to eat here. I can figure out a way to make this work. And I I wanted to move um, into something a little bit more entrepreneurial from what I was doing. I felt confident because I I did have some personal relationships with those that were part of our group. We all invested the same amount initially. So we're equally yoked in that regard. And then we've continued to move forward you know, as we've taken on equal shares of the financial obligations, it's different now day to day, but we're really leveraging our history together. And the fact that this has all become a pretty significant part of our financial portfolios, if not our main financial portfolio. But I tell my students a lot, you know, you can't legalize this. Yes, I have good operating agreements. We've got to protect ourselves, but you don't want to spend your time trying to motivate partners who aren't going to be up to your level. You want to run to where the energy was at. And I'm very blessed that you know there were five other men who came into my life who had that energy and that focus, all different individuals, but we seemed to make decisions along the same way. And so we could run towards that opportunity. Now, let me get this straight. You got five partners? Yes. Okay. Obviously, it's working out. My question is, how in the world is it working out? Because there's a lot of you. How, how do you make it work? You know, it's a lot like when one of my habits is whenever I see somebody who's been married for 60 years, I was like, how do you do that? Right. And it's always shocking, like just, you know, how basic the answers are. They're like, well, we communicate well, we compromise, we do what we say we're going to do. And that same attitude is what comes to mind when people ask me how we've done it. Right. Like we've made sure that we're equally yoked in the financial burdens, but then we also communicate well. We're always very forthcoming. We're always 100% honest with one another. Uh, And that's just enabled us to grow as a company and tackle bigger opportunities that come with some bigger challenges along those ways. But it's those same character traits that play well in a business partnership or a marriage. 
Yeah, that's great. Great advice. Communication, do what you say. You know, honesty. I think those are great. How are you guys splitting up your roles of responsibilities? And I, I ask because we see some partnerships struggle because the roles and responsibilities are shared and no one really knows who's responsible and accountable for it versus other partnerships where the roles are more clear cut. You fund the deal that raise the money. You manage it. You know, <laughs> how do you guys split up your, your roles and responsibilities? Well, it's much different today than it was at the outset. At the outset, we had one townhome that all six of us went and slapped 30 gallons of paint on the wall, which was 28 gallons more than it needed. <laughs> and so we were just all kind of doing what was necessary. And that's one of the things that I'm so grateful for, because I see a lot of people get lost in legalities early on, like trying to avoid any potential pitfalls. Because we were young, it was just like, let's go. This is an opportunity. Let's chase this. Let's capture as many of these as we can. Now, as our assets grew over time and we got to a point where we wanted somebody to do this full time and I was the first, we now have one other partner who's joined me and he runs a different business line for us. But then because I had been traveling for a living, uh, I was able, because I actually left Minneapolis, as I said, I was down in Austin, Texas, but that enabled me to take calls about broken toilets. I was really involved in a lot of the property management, asset management. And so that kept me up to speed day to day. So it was really clear for me to delineate a role. And that really became my job. And I tell people now, my job is really three parts. It's find money, find deals and write process docs. So, and really it's just writing process docs for my staff so I can spend more time on the first two things. So it matured over time. But as I said, I'm just so grateful that we had the operating mindset initially of we're just going to go and do it as necessary. We're not going to worry about legality. And then as it grew over time, we said, yeah, we got to compensate people here. But that didn't come until multiple years down the line. Okay, so Matt, walk us through the difference between going on uh, acquiring townhomes and duplexes to into multifamily. What was the what was the first big jump you had from moving from the duplexes into the the larger multifamily class? Well, I, I want to come back to this because it was actually easier to acquire multifamily than it was to acquire townhomes. But we had, and again, like I would love to tell you that we were so smart that like yes, we're going to go to multifamily, but. Townhomes was like our worldview. We thought the greatest thing you could do would be to acquire this big portfolio of townhomes. The first time somebody brought us a deal to invest in, like we questioned whether it was even legal. We're like, how do you do this? Who's on title? What? What's going on here? And we had acquired enough assets. We have always reinvested all of our capital into the business. And then we had done some debt funds over time to put ourselves in a position where we had a significant amount of capital that we could invest. And so that's really how we brought value to the deal. Uh, we had an operator that was here locally. The key cog for all of us is Target. We all met at Target at their corporate office. Or Drew, I know you have a background as well. I don't know what that says about Target. Maybe they were working us too hard or not enough. I don't know that we all went and formed these real estate careers afterwards. But we were blessed enough to meet an operator who was really advanced in establishing a deal and he had set it up and he said, look, I don't have the capital necessary. And so we were able to come on as a joint venture partner. And then we built on that, that introduced us to other lenders, really helped us build out our team. And then as we identified that this is where we want to go, we really were able to leverage that and show that as our experience to prove ourselves as credible buyers, which is, you know, the main hurdle that you have to meet when you want to purchase multifamily assets. But coming back, you know, as I think back on it, you know, your mind is so tunnel vision when you get started. You don't think about the possibilities that are out there. It's like, yes, all I can buy is this townhome. Well, it was easier to secure the financing on a 32 unit that I bought back in January 
than it was to secure the financing on the townhome. Like the townhome, they wanted the name of my first unborn son. I swear, like there was actually a banker who we brought to because we would do this, you know, bank roadshow. We'd say, and this was in 2011. We're like, hey, we got this idea. We're going to start a real estate investment company. And the banks would say, oh, that's great. Show us your balance sheet. We're like, well, that's where you come in. And they'd say, that's cute. Come back and see us a little later. But like one banker legitimately wanted like the ability to approve of all of our leases. Where you contrast that with multifamily, what we see from its historical risk performance, it was night and day difference. And the loan terms were better. So it's easier is my first uh, and foremost response from the difference between townhomes to multifamily. Matt, you said something real interesting in there. You said you have a debt fund. Can you talk about what that is and what that looks like to work with a debt fund investor versus your traditional limited partner investor in a syndication? Sure. So this was something that really got started when we initially started buying properties because we knew we wanted to scale. We had capital to invest. We've invested our own capital, but we sat around and looked at what had just taken place between 2008 to 2011. And yeah, you'd seen the market go to some incredible highs, but that volatility along the way had really crushed the principle for a number of folks uh, in our inner circle, primarily friends and family. And that's where this started. So if you were in your late 50s, early 60s, watching what had happened to your 401k, it was pretty traumatic, right? That was your nest egg that you were going to depend on. And so what we did is we initially, you know, positioned a known quantity and we came out with three different vehicles. One was, and we really priced them like a bond. So one was a full annuity, another was a coupon, and a third was a lump sum. We said, you know, here you can know what you're going to earn. We're taking away the uncertainty. And so now you can plan for that. And what started out with just friends and family has grown through referrals. These are all people that we've had previous relationships with, but we've been fortunate to raise over $4 million through these various debt structures that we've come up with. And that's enabled us to provide some great risk adjusted returns for our investors. We also do traditional equity investments now, but it's enabled us to scale along the way and find some better opportunities for our capital and for our investors' capital. So it's a little counterintuitive that you're providing a, kind of a debt product to investors uh, because we're always used to, you know, IRRs and cash on cash return, you know, that are traditionally bigger than the stock market and better than the stock market. Everything's just awesome. And then you guys are providing like this debt, this boring debt fund. Like what kind of investor is interested in that versus maybe another? Well, First, you're going to see people who maybe are a little bit older and you know have achieved financial independence. And right now, they're just looking to preserve it. The thing that they want to take out of their equation is the uncertainty. I want to know what my returns are going to be. And while nothing's ever guaranteed, I have a greater degree of certainty here. And it allows me to plan accordingly. And as I speak with investors about this, I'm always quick to say this isn't an either or discussion. We have investors who've kind of used this as a hedge play, right? Like they've invested with one of our debt instruments. And especially as we've been able to offer these for people doing a self-directed IRA, that's really attractive. So they think like, look, my nest egg, I want to be a little bit more conservative there. But then if they have disposable cash to invest, maybe they'll take advantage of one of the equity opportunities. So there is a way to do both there. Let me ask you something. Do you actually, is it actually debt that you're raising and using as debt or you're treating equity as debt? Like how were you, what are you actually doing there? It is actually debt that we are raising there, which has been helpful to us because that is recourse debt and that actually helps our basis 
in the partnership. So it gives us a little bit better tax position. So Matt, you've seen a lot of things along the, along the way. What are some of the mistakes maybe that you guys have made or lessons learned along the way? You know, initially we were pretty tunnel visioned, right? Like only townhomes. That's that's all that we thought you could do in real estate because we were just relying on what our past experience was. And for many new real estate investors, that's what they know. They know, you know, the uncle who maybe rented out a, a few properties around town. They don't think about the opportunities that come with scale. So if I could go back, I would get into multifamily much faster. Uh, and, you know, we can talk through that, but whether it's because the debt is more secure or it's a better asset in terms of its risk performance or your ability to scale, that's certainly something I think that um, we've learned. We also learned, um, thankfully we were able uh, to move beyond it, but we had this initial idea that, look, all property is great. Anything that you can rent, buy it. So we would buy everything from like a townhome built in 1995 to, you know, here in the Twin Cities, we've got older home stock stuff that was built around turn of the century. And unfortunately, I don't mean 2000. So back around 1900, we're like, oh, these will work great. We're going to use the same analysis that we had used previously. And this is as we were going through that scaling that a lot of people do buying duplexes and fourplexes. And you just don't see the same operating efficiency. And if you're not careful, uh, you can get into some, oh my God, repairs that can really eat you up. And we're able to, as I said, thankfully divest of a lot of those and move on. But those are two of the key things that we've learned along the way. I'd, Go back and do multifamily faster and you don't assume that all properties are created equal. Matt, one of the things your group has done well is also created their own property management firm to manage some of your local assets. Tell us about how you decided to have that vertical integration into your business and how does that help you underwrite and find deals in the larger multifamily space? Sure. Well, we decided on it when we saw a townhouse that needed painting and we said, okay, all six of us are needed here. And so that was the first day of business for the property management company. And that dealt with even framing out a basement and doing literally all the work ourselves. We've installed carpet before. It did not go well. Don't hire us to install your carpet for you. But, you know, as we went along, we then were able to see that it's a way to pay yourself as you scale a real estate business. And you can certainly be successful using third-party management. Uh, we have retained it though, because it enables us to own more of the value chain. And the thing that I value most about it is that it gives me incredible insight into deals here in the Twin Cities. I know where to value rents at. You know, as we've talked a lot, Drew, we can come up with all these complex financial models, but there's really, you know, two data points that matter, which is the money coming in and the money going out. Everything after that is a moot point. And so I have real data that I can go to because we've owned and managed data all throughout the Twin Cities. And then I think it's really helped me to evaluate property managers as we've expanded into other markets, knowing how to evaluate their systems, knowing what to expect of a property manager, knowing where to give grace along the way. I'd love to tell you that it's all going to be so easy, um, but we're running a business, so the unknown does happen. And we typically advise uh, syndicators not to self-manage. It's just better to just outsource a third-party professional managers. You guys decided to do it. What is your advice? Should someone self-manage or not? I think if you're just getting started today, you should work with a third-party manager. You know, had we not built up this portfolio and started, you know, as I said, just growing one home after another, I don't know that we would be involved with property management. There are blessings that I'm really grateful 
for, but I think as a syndicator, if you can learn how to evaluate good property managers and find a good one to partner with, you can scale probably quicker and more effectively than we did. Great advice, Matt. What other things would you tell people trying to get into this business today? You're obviously a mentor. You've got a bunch of students that are starting to see great success. What are some of the tips that you would give them trying to jump into the syndication business? So I think it's really a bend towards action. Obviously, you have to get educated. You have to be able to speak a language. But the students that I see do well are willing to put themselves out there and to learn by doing, and they're comfortable putting their foot in their mouth. They're comfortable making mistakes along the way because it's in those moments that they learn so much, right? Like you can hear people tell their story and listener of Michael's podcast obviously firmly believe in this, but this needs to be just one stepping stone into your career, right? Like, and as we do this, I often have to remind students too, like we're entrepreneurs and there's a lot of fun in that. There's tremendous freedom in that, but being an entrepreneur means that you're willing to wade out into the unknown. I get a lot of questions like, oh, is, is this how you do this? Is this how you do this? And I'm like, look, there are no rules here. <laughs> the only rule is that you underwrite conservatively and that you represent your investor's best interest, but you can structure deals any way you want to. And we're learning new each day as, you know, as we came out of COVID-19, everyone told us that real estate sales would stop. They didn't, but we did have to adapt a little bit. We had to adapt how we were looking specifically at the financing. And so it's that attitude along the way. You're willing to learn by doing, and you're willing to wait out into the unknown. Tell us more about underwriting in COVID, Matt. I know you and I are working on a deal together. Tell us some of the things that we've learned coming out of COVID and, and what the deals look like today. Well, I think the phrase everyone has coming out of COVID is cautiously optimistic. And obviously this is you know, something very serious that we want to honor, but we also want to make sure that we're having data-driven responses. What we just saw from the National Multi-Housing Council is that the same percentage of tenants who made a full payment of rent in September of 2020 did so in September of 2019. And there have been some ebbs and flows there along the way. And there are certainly some concerning things that we're seeing at a local level in terms of eviction moratoriums and you know rent strikes being promoted. But thankfully, people are still prioritizing that. So we are seeing multifamily continue to live up to its expectation of being a good risk-adjusted asset. Now, in terms of how you underwrite, what I've really focused on is you're not seeing any just natural market appreciation. So the 3% year over year is out the door. But what we are seeing is forced appreciation. And it makes sense if you think about what we all just lived through. Because through forced appreciation, what I mean there is that if I can make this unit look nicer because I'm gonna put in a tiled shower, I'm gonna put in some nice granite countertops, some new cabinets, well then, I can rent it for more. It's one of the things I love about multifamily. There's a basic retail aspect of this. If I can make it, this unit look like this, I have comps that prove that people will pay for that. And that is something that we are seeing right now. And it makes sense because people were just forced to spend anywhere from six weeks to three months. Some are still under quarantine right now. So having a place to live when you are under quarantine is very important. All of a sudden, as you look around, it's why Home Depot can't keep cabinets in stock right now, right? Like people are really excited to change where they live because they've had to spend more time there. One of the things on our deal that we're looking at is the fact that, you know, we're going after more of a working professional as part of our tenant base. So like what's really important to that group? Well, the groups had to stay home more. 
all these Zoom calls, they eat up a ton of broadband. So we want to be able to offer good internet access. So a product like a Gigafy and there's other providers out there becomes a great way to drive incremental revenue onto these deals. Yeah, you mentioned COVID because, you know, sometimes, a lot of times we say, hey, is now a great time to to invest? And it's really indicative of uh, of mindset where people are, are afraid. And they were saying the same thing four months ago. Oh, the market's too hot. Maybe I should just wait. Yeah. What are some of the things as you're working with students who are getting started? What are some some things that you're facing uh, people get stuck on? And, and maybe how do they get unstuck? Well, the first thing they do get stuck on is fear. When you hear it from every news outlet that effectively life needs to stop, that's kind of our initial reaction. I've always been quick to share, look, I owe my entire career to 2009, 2011. Not that we were trying to take advantage, but it's in those moments where you have great opportunity. You have to be smart. You have to make data-driven decisions. And then the next piece that I really see people struggle with is this desire or need to plan out every piece of the future. So they look at deal and they want to know exactly how things are going to go. Now, you should not misunderstand what I'm saying to say like we should guess at any of our underwriting. No, like we need good conservative underwriting driven by people who know it. But you have to accept the fact that there are unknowns when you run a business and that you're going to learn as you go all the way along. There is not one way to raise capital. There is not one way to source equity. The cap rate isn't the same for every market. The cap rate is not what we want it to be. So many of the students get stuck on just, oh, the cap rate is this. I just need to go find a nine cap and boom, I've got the deal. Well, no, if it was that easy, everybody would do it. It's all about your investors. And this is the students that are able to jump, understand this. They understand that it's the underwriting. Where can I get my rents to? What's it going to cost me to get there? And what investor returns do I need to hit along the way? They have an understanding of what they need for their own money, and they have an understanding for what their investors need. And investors may not always be so clear as to say, find me a deal with an 18% IRR. Like you need to be cued in. You need to ask good follow-up questions. You need to understand like what's their risk appetite. And that's going to tell you the availability or the ability of your bench to invest in the deals that you bring to them. So it's understanding those. And then if you can find a deal that meets that, the cap rates are relevant. It's does the pro forma match what smart, well-informed people know of that market? And does it meet your investors' returns? I think one of the things you, you said earlier was the key to success is action. Uh, when I observe people who are successful who are not, that's exactly what sets them apart. It's not demographics. It's not experience. It's not how much money they have or don't have. It's that one is taking action, and they're taking action regardless of whether they're afraid because we're all afraid, right? But some people who are successful, they decide to move forward anyway, uh, and those people can take action even though they don't have anything figured out yet. It's the sign of a true entrepreneur, uh, frankly. I'm curious, do, do you think that some people are just born that way, or can people be taught how to overcome fear, how to overcome being stuck? I believe you can. That's my own story, Right. My thought growing up is I just want to find one job that I can work for 40 years. I'll magically save enough money and then I'll be able to take care of my family. And there's a whole different number of ways we can go to this. But I can tell you that I feel safer now that I've stepped out on my own than I did beforehand. And that's because I can see 
what's in front of me. We all live in the real world. We, we do have to provide something. You know, we don't magically get the income and the resources that we need to love and care for our families. That's just not the way the world works. We, everything is dependent on our performance. I feel safer now because I can see it, right? I would argue that it's scarier to be at a Fortune 500, 100 company, whatever you want to say, and have decisions happening in boardrooms where you never knew about it, your performance could be fine, but you happen to be sitting in the wrong seat and now you're out of a job and you never had any insight there. So where I think a lot of people have an initial reaction is they see the risk, right? They're like, oh my gosh, if I don't grow business here, I don't eat. Okay, you know, that is true, but at least now you see your path is clear. You can dictate your next steps here as opposed to being dependent on pleasing somebody else, which could be completely for arbitrary reasons. Or as I said, you could have just been sitting in the wrong seat doing a great job, but you got caught in a reorg. I've seen all the above happen. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, how are you guys scaling your business? Uh, so both talk about raising capital and operations, maybe finding deals. Like what are some of the challenges that you are facing right now as you try to ramp this thing up? Why the challenges and how we're responding, I would say, is as we expand into different markets, what we're looking for are always, you know, population bases that are growing, job bases that are growing. And then one thing that I think a lot of people miss is landlord friendly tenant laws. And that's what I'm watching as we come out of this pandemic, because obviously there's a care and a justifiable care for people and making sure that they have a safe place to call home. I would say that we can provide better housing solutions, the more freedom is given to landlords to operate their business. And so as we look to new markets, we've explored additional areas like Memphis, Tennessee, because we've seen a partnership there between local municipalities and operators that allow us to provide good housing solutions and don't you know, arbitrarily hamstring us in our ability to get rid of tenants who aren't gonna fulfill their obligations or who are going to intentionally inflict damage on other people's property and make it an unsafe place for people to live. Obviously, when you're also trying to find deals, you respond a lot to students who are like, Matt, do you think it's wise that I just step back right now? You know, it just seems like it's really hard to find a deal. It's always been hard to find a deal and it always will be. You have to dig in and we've been able to find it through a lot of intentional networking. We try to drive value and add value wherever we can. You know, as I look down into, Drew mentioned he and I are, are doing a deal in Memphis here. That partnership started with a passive investment. And I would go on trips with Drew once a quarter, sometimes to go look at deals that I wasn't even invested in. But I knew the broker that would be there. I knew the property manager that would be there. And I wanted them to see me as somebody who was willing to get on a plane, to be at a meeting and be a credible buyer so that when we did have opportunities that came along, they would take my call. Matt, the Twin Cities has been one of the hottest markets in the nation. Just excellent demographics, excellent job growth. It's hard work to find deers here locally. And I hear that from a lot of students that say, things are just too hot here. I, I got to find there's some, there's some magic market out there that has great cap rates and tons of inventory. I mean, that's a common theme. How do you tell your students in terms of how do you balance their approach to saying, how much do I look in my own hometown? And what are the things I should consider if I'm going to look in a market outside of my home area? I'm always quick to say to my students, if your hometown isn't one of your markets, you need to have a very good reason why because you always know more about your own backyard than you realize or than you give yourself credit for. You know more about the neighborhoods. You can speak more confidently. You know, we can get into some of the nuts and bolts as you try to go after agency debt 
unless you're a very experienced syndicator, they're not going to arbitrarily lend to someone from California who wants to do a deal in Memphis, Tennessee, if that's the first deal that they've ever done there. Right now, there are some realities that we have to deal with. If your hometown happens to be San Francisco, Boston, or New York, it is very difficult to find deals there. And so you are likely going to have to look elsewhere. But there's a lot of students who I think are a little too quick to make that jump because there is no magic market, right? You know, yes, it, it could be difficult to find deals here, but that also means that we've got good fundamentals. So we've got a growing job base. We've got tenants who can pay rent. Sometimes where students say like, oh, I see so many deals available for sale here. Well, why? Why are so many people divesting there? Why are people getting out of there? There is no you know, mythical place where property managers are plentiful and deals are just all over the place. So uh, there's, there's always work and hustle to be done. Matt, really enjoyed uh, chatting with you and, and picking your brain about your experiences. And again, I'm so grateful that you're, uh, you're giving back by helping students do the same thing that you've done. Uh, where's a good place for people to connect with you? Sure. So people can find me on LinkedIn, Matt Bronner, and you can also send me an email. It's Matt at NWS Properties, all spelled out, dot com. Matt at NWS Properties dot com. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Drew. And if you want to work with people like Matt or Matt himself, check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor, because there you have profiles of all of our full-time syndicators that are now mentors. Super successful in their own right, and yet they share our passion for teaching, and Drew is certainly uh, one of them as well. Just go out there and check it out, see if mentoring is right for you. It's the michaelblank.com forward slash mentor and set up a call to speak to us about working with one of these awesome full-time syndicators. So Drew, kind of what are some of the things that uh, stuck out for you from our conversation with Matt? Yeah, right away, the the fact that he was able to build a business with some partners, I think was just a huge testament to their success. They found people that they trusted each other, they worked well, and they've done a great job of delineating the responsibilities. Uh, and that alone, those relationships are things that help make them successful and make them really, you can tell he really enjoys what he does and he really enjoys the people that he gets to work with. And it's, it's so funny, but he said, don't over-engineer it because sometimes we're like, oh, let's work on the operating agreement. Uh, and, you know, when you're putting the cart before the horse, you don't even know these guys are going to like each other in six months from now. And they kind of just did it. And, you know, it wouldn't have surprised me if two or three or more of them would have dropped off and yet they stuck around. So I love how he says, oh, how, how do you make it work? It's just like a marriage, right? Communicate, do what you say, honesty. Yeah. And isn't that the truth as well? The other thing I thought was interesting was consider starting a proper management company when you've grown some, some scale. Uh, and we're certainly thinking about that as well. Though having said that, that decision is never easy to make. But that stuck out for me. It's something that we didn't consider and we just dismissed it out of hand. But, you know, Matt's got several hundred units. And even for your, you know, you, you guys, you have close, you know, over 2000 units now as well. Uh, to what degree are you looking or thinking about potentially self-managing? The way my business is built, it is dispersed amongst different geographic areas. I really trust the kind of property managers that we have. Um, I think if you have a high enough density in a certain market and you think that there's some advantages um, from having control over the sort of the tenants in the process, there's some advantages. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not there yet, but I do admire the people that have an opportunity and want to sort of build that kind of a business. You need to answer the question, how do I want to interact in this business? Do I want to be an investor or do I want to have a job in real estate? Uh, and different people have different propensities towards the sort of that spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, again, I think density is key. You need several hundred units in a particular area for it to be worthwhile to, you know, you attract kind of talent you need to do all that stuff. Uh, what, what else, uh, what else uh, stuck out from your conversation with Matt? You know, I, I loved how he said, even though that their group has been really successful, 
it's always hard. Deals are always hard and you don't get it by sort of, they don't just fall into your lap. Uh, they found ways to educate themselves, build a business. They use a lot of different creativity to kind of get the returns they need. Um, I love Matt's ideas about using debt syndication and he's using equity syndication. Uh, so they find ways to help service their investors and they find creative ways to find the great deals. And they, they do that by uh, being smart and deliberate. You know, I think really understanding your investors is key. And, uh, you know, know, to some extent, we don't do enough of that, frankly, because we're just we're just providing equity, right? Uh, Equity is what we're what we're providing. And and there's a lot of people who buy, you know, offer preferred or or in this case, debt equity. Uh, Some people work only with 1031 exchange investors, you know, and so really understanding your investor base and what they want. Uh, you know, even Corey Peterson, he has a very interesting, unique model because he really talks to people who are typically have IRA money, right? So yeah. it's a particular kind of investor who's thrilled at getting six to ten to twelve percent, you know. And our quote normal investor, it would bore them to tears. But yet those investors are out there, and the investors that are investing in debt are out there. So I think it's a very interesting thing to go and look at your investors and profile investors and see what they would and would not consider. Maybe you're not actually serving them properly, right? Maybe you have a heavy value add deal that has a high IRR but doesn't have a cash on cash. What if what if there's an investor that wants cash on cash and they don't really care about the IR, right? What are you doing about them? So it's it's really splitting, uh, you know, understanding your your investors. So any any uh, parting thoughts here, Drew? Keep leaning into the business. Keep finding ways to uh, service your investors. Find, keep finding ways to find deals. Everyone's making money in your home market. You have every advantage in that home market. And I love how Matt said, uh, just keep going after it. You have all those advantages and find opportunities to create good deals. Yeah, the thing is, uh, is for me is, you know, some people talk about taking massive action. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, Drew. <laughs> Who in the world takes a- a massive action? It's like 7.5% of the world's population. Really, get not very useful. Yep. You know, we keep talking about, you know, what I call tiny action, which is doing a little bit every day. Yep. And that's really, if you, if you study the people who are successful in any field, multifamily or otherwise, those are, uh, that's what they do. They take a little bit of action every single day. You know, and they really commit to the activity and then the outcome becomes inevitable. So awesome, guys. Thanks for your time today. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.